Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there, and also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode. I am so thrilled to welcome to the podcast today, Anat Shankar Osorio. Many of you may have seen her all over the place leading up to the midterm elections, She is the guru of progressive messaging, uh, by all accounts and purposes right now, from anyone you ask. And one of the things that I'm so excited to share with you all today is her big takeaways on messaging from the left, where it's working and where it's failed, and what we're headed toward into 2024. Just by way of background, Anat is the principal and founder of ASO Communications, where, by the way, as you will learn in this episode, there is a ton of open source information on messaging that's available. She has her own podcast, which is called the Words to Win by Podcast, and her focus is why certain messages falter and others deliver. She gives speeches. She has spoken at the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the Center for Australian Progress, the Irish Migrant Circle, Open Society Foundations, the Ford Foundation, Lush International. And she's been profiled in the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Boston Globe Salon, the Guardian, and so many other places. And it is our privilege to have her here with us today on the Living Through It podcast. So without further ado, here's this week's interview. And we're back, and I'm so excited because we have a Not Shankar Osorio here with us today. As you all know, I've had a lot of early inquiries already about this particular interview because you are, um, as I'm sure people have referred to you as, as this before, but the kind of like messaging guru of the progressive side of the fence. And so um, some folks over on Post and elsewhere were asking me to ask you some questions about where we were and where we're going. And so uh, first things first, welcome. We're so excited that you're here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, okay, so let's, I, you know, one of the things I don't even know, even though you and I have now been traveling in each other's circles for like the last few years, you know, how did you become so good at this? Because, you know, we see you on MSNBC and everything that you say on Twitter or that you've said elsewhere I, I always really resonates with me. Um, and I'm wondering how you decided that, that this was really your focus and what it was that drove you to start your communications firm and to get involved in political messaging. Yeah. Um, there are many ways to answer that question. I think one of the ways is that there's very, very little, I hate to say it, but that's under our control. We can't control what the opposition says. We can't control how much money we have. they have. We can't control how much money we have. We can't control what the media is going to do. We can do our darndest and try our hardest. But one of the few things that's actually under our control is the words that we use, whether spoken or written or some combination. And so for me, coming at this through the lens of language is a way to gain agency and to gain power and to really be able to attempt to affect change. Now, I'm not saying that that's the be all end all and that's all there is because all of the rest of those factors and just structural factors that make certain races nearly impossible to win um, are there. And, you know, this kind of messaging work exists within a landscape of everything else that is not under our control. And then the other reason is that I just grew up in a really multilingual household. I learned multiple languages from a really, really, really young age. And what happens when you're exposed to multiple languages, we know not just sort of anecdotally, but rather from actually studying brain development, is that the pathways in your brain, you have more of them. And so 
basically synaptic pruning, the process by which we learn not just language, but everything, is actually a process of getting rid of things. It's not a process of adding things. You're born with all the neurons you're ever going to have in life. And the process of learning in infancy is a process of certain neurons wiring together and creating pathways. And if you grow up with a single language, more of those, fewer of those pathways are open to you just by definition, because you learn that this object that you sit on, that that action is called sitting and that that object is called a chair and it may have different forms and different colors and occur in different ways, but that's what it's called. Whereas if you learn multiple different languages at once, you learn that there is a multiplicity of ways to reference, I'm just using this silly example, that object, that action. You learn that sometimes the noun can go before the verb or it can go after. You can learn that the adjective can be gendered or it can be not. And it just, I think, creates, created in me at least, a more expansive idea of the range of ways to express the same concept. Yeah, I love that. And you know, what I'm thinking about here is the way in which um, also how trauma impacts synaptic development as you're talking about this, because one of the things that I've seen, that we've all seen, honestly, in the years of the Trump administration and since is the way in which we're all so quick to anger and to express without thinking through what we're saying and the ways in which those pathways have been built over time through the ways in which we communicate on social media. So it's fascinating because it's not just about taking back, you know, some control and understanding the nuance that different forms of communication and language can have. But it's also, it seems to me, about taking back control over your emotional responses to things at the same time by choosing how you respond. Yeah. I talk a lot, um, you know, I'm a mom. Uh, I talk a lot about indoor voices and outdoor voices as kind of a joke. And I talk a lot about our expressions in our indoor voices when we're speaking amongst each other where anything goes. You're upset, you're exhausted, you're frustrated, you're angry. Talk about it, share it, express it. But when you're doing messaging, when you are engaged in the formal activity of messaging, not venting, not ranting, and also I think it's important to highlight not informing you are actually doing messaging. There's really only two purposes to strategic communications. The purposes of strategic communications are to change what people believe and to change what they do. That's it. And so a really emblematic example of a misfire in this realm would be the years and years and years, this is going to seem like a non sequitur perhaps, that people spent trying to, quote, prove that climate change is person-made. We're going to tell the people, we're going to tell the people that this is uh, caused by humans. And at the end of the day, I'm not your science teacher. I'm not your priest. I'm not your mama. It is very unfortunate if you have an allergy to basic factual information. That is frustrating for sure. But it's actually not my job to get you to confess your sins and repent and recognize that climate change is person-made. It's my job to get you to vote in a certain way. It's my job to get you to favor certain policies. If it's a sort of consumer campaign, it's my job to get you to eschew certain corporations and embrace others. It depends always on the goal. And, you know, there's a canard in relationships. You can choose to be right or you can choose to be happy. And the way that I think about that in the realm of messaging is you can choose to be right or you can choose to win. Yeah. And if you need people to be like, I was wrong and everything that I thought for the last however many years was utter stupidity, then that's probably too high a bar to set for yourself as a first step before you even persuade them of whatever the particulars of the issue are. Yeah. It's, you know, it's interesting because there's one of the, one of the things that I keep thinking about as well in the, and I want to get your thoughts on like the implosion of Twitter and everything that's kind of happened there and the impact of that on political messaging in a minute. But one of the things that has been really noticeable to me as Twitter has sort of devolved under Elon Musk's leadership is the way in which it has made me very seriously attuned to the folks who are just shouting 
this is wrong or this is horrible or you should be outraged about this. And the folks who were actually engaged in a process of, you know, to use Anand Giridharis's statement, persuading, right? You know, his new book, The Persuaders, which you're profiled in. You know, I I think there's, it's fascinating how, um, you know, there are a lot of folks who just seem to want to beat others over the head with a verbal sledgehammer of how wrong they are or how outraged they should be by something, rather than thinking through the strategic aims of it. And I kind of feel like, and I don't know if you feel this way, but I kind of feel like this is a really interesting moment of opportunity, actually, for us to sort of recalibrate how we communicate online. Um, And I guess, you know, maybe we should just talk about it now. I'm curious as to what you think this moment is going to be about as we watch Twitter kind of like apparently go down the tubes. It definitely seems like it's headed that direction when it's been such a major organizing site and and a site for messaging good and bad, um, effective and good, I should say, uh, or not effective. And I'm wondering, you know, are you thinking that maybe this is a learning opportunity? Are there silver linings to this from a messaging standpoint? Yeah. So let me answer that by just taking a step back first, if if that's okay. So there are many asymmetries between the left and the right on all dimensions. The one that obviously I know about is communications, and so I'm focusing there. One of those asymmetries that is really, really hard for people to internalize is that for the most part on the right, there is a continuum of behavior, engagement, what is effective, what is not effective between activists, people who are, you know, hyper-engaged, they give money, they pay attention, they're politically aware, they sign up for stuff, they're on Twitter or they're on, you know, their equivalent, their right-wing equivalents in the dark web, and people who are ideologically right-wing but not activists. The kinds of things that stir up and maintain engagement among activists and the kinds of things that work to achieve those same aims against just sort of your standard right-wing ideologue who, you know, maybe votes, doesn't do much more, and maybe even sometimes doesn't vote, there's a continuity. On the left, there isn't. And that is very, very hard. So left-wing activists, people who are already engaged, you do not need to convince them to vote. They are like, they are desperate to vote. They would like more voting, please. More often, more (laughs) things. They, i.e. we, are very motivated and engaged by fear, by anger, by what I like to call, boy, have I got a problem for you, right? We never met a problem we didn't love. Please, I would like another problem. I am so... (laughs) Wait, did you say that this was the Titanic? I'm so excited to get aboard. (laughs) This is a lost cause. Oh, wait, there is absolutely no hope here. That Sign me up. (laughs) That is a very small sub-portion of the population, and it happens to have and have had for a very long time and still you know, even as the the people jumping ship, I guess I'm really on this Titanic uh, <laughs> analogy here, uh, are more left-wing people. Like, that's the sort of left ethos among activists, among ideologically progressive people who are unengaged. Fear is not motivating. Fear is an inhibiting emotion. It is not an activating emotion. Now, there are negative emotions that are activating, defiance, very much so, and I'm happy to talk about how that manifests in an actual message, anger, sure, but also, you know, as many people have remarked, Martin Luther King Jr. did not get famous for saying, I have a complaint, nor did he say, I have a multi-bulleted list of policy proposals. Even in the absolute darkest, worst, you know, getting beaten by Bull Connor of times, there was still a dream to present there because unengaged, ideologically progressive people actually need to feel that they are voting for something, that they are acting for something, that there is some beautiful tomorrow. And to be honest, even on the right, it doesn't look that way to us, but they are also presenting a, quote, beautiful tomorrow. Their beautiful tomorrow is nostalgia. Their beautiful tomorrow is the 50s, by which I mean the 1850s. 
it is a world in which, you know, women know their place, black people know their place, immigrants know their place, and white, cis, straight men are at the top of the hierarchy as the world deems it should be. So what is the point of all this preamble? Sorry. The point of all this preamble, I didn't forget the question, is that Twitter, among other things, also email marketing, the text that everyone is rightly very upset about and lamenting, we are receiving bad signals. Tweets, videos, ads that are full of like ugly, terrible, horrible problems get engagement. It gets engagement to essentially be a mouthpiece. And I'm really sad to say this for Nick Fuentes, right? Right. It gets engagement. It's left-wing accounts that are amplifying and showing off white nationalist, anti-Semitic, transphobic, homophobic, et cetera, rhetoric. That is where those views are coming from, which is really, really awful and terrible and toxic for all of us. And so the problem is that we're in a feedback loop where, but it got retweeted a million times or not, but it got so much traction, but it got so many comments, but it got so many likes. And because we as humans, all of us, feed off of attention, especially when we feel socially isolated, which, you know, is another effect of the pandemic. It's like, but people are paying attention to me. People are liking me. People are hearing me. People are noticing me. And that's a basic human need is to be seen, to be noticed, to be considered. And so we are amplifying discourse that is making apolitical people more conservative or more despondent because we are reinforcing this idea that the world is on fire, everything is horrible, all there are is problems, everything is awful. And then sometimes we're actually literally reinforcing the discourse of white supremacy. So I hope that if you know, if and when, and it seems, you know, a fait accompli that Twitter is indeed um, going to go away, at least as a left-wing channel, we recall that if your goal is raising awareness, you have no goal. That's not a goal. Right. A goal is I need X number of people to engage in Y activity by Z date. That's a goal. It's, I mean, it's fascinating to me because I've I've been the person And, you know, some of this I have to give credit to you for your influence, because the first time I ever you and I ever interacted was like before the 2020 presidential election. And I got the message at that point very loudly and clearly that amplifying far right accounts was actually being done by a lot of us on the left with like what we thought were solid intentions. One of the things that has been very scary to me in watching this declination of Twitter over the last few weeks has been the way in which, like, for instance, the moment that Trump's account was reinstated, the only people who I saw tweeting about it were people on the left. And granted, I had a very curated feed on there, but I literally said to people, stop tweeting it. Like, why? What do you think you're going to gain by tweeting that out? Right. What are you going to gain by tweeting out Elon Musk's interaction with known far-right white supremacists, right? Um, And so I think your point is really so important and has not yet honestly been heard or processed by a lot of people on our side of the fence, that we're actually the delivery mechanism for a lot of this stuff um, and that there's a lot of danger in that. One thing I do want to lift up because it's important not to confuse one thing with the other. I am not saying, and I have never said, just give them a pass. Everything they're right. doing is oh, fine. Right. Just look exactly. the other way. It's, it's, we're in Disneyland. Everything is functioning great. There is absolutely a way, and that's what good messaging does, to call them out. But you do that by creating a contrast. And that is why we find over and over and over again that ordering effects matter. It actually fundamentally matters. The same three sentences in a message tested in two different orders have a remarkably different impact on persuasion and mobilization. And so messages that are effective begin with a statement of shared value. They don't begin with, boy, have I got a problem for you. So that's the difference between saying, 
you know, Trump is back on Twitter and he's like dining with white nationalists and, you know, the GOP is just a bunch of racists as we've known all along. True, 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 all true statements. When people say things like that, I mean, frequently what I say to people is, what's your theory of change on that? What are you hoping to have happen by letting folks know that? In contrast, saying, for example, most of us believe that we should treat others the way we want to be treated, or most of us believe that America is ever and always in a process of becoming the thing that it promised, a place of liberty and justice for all, no exceptions. But today, Trump Republicans, including Trump himself, aided and abetted by media and social media, especially with Elon Musk taking over Twitter, are trying to divide us from each other, peddling hate for profit. Yes, you call out what they're doing. Yes, you name villains. Absolutely, absolutely. But you name that within the context of what you actually want to have happen, what you actually want people to do. Because if you don't do that, what happens is you unleash the cynicism that exists that's already there. Like, that is people's default. Everything is shit. This country is a piece of shit. There's nothing that we can ever do. Let's watch the world end in high definition. What the fuck? It doesn't matter anyway. And our job is to actually fight that thing as much as it is to fight the Nazis. It's both and. But if you're not considering how you're impacting people's sense of futility and despondency, you're not actually thinking about strategic messaging. Yeah, it's you know one one of the other things that to me I was paying very close attention to leading up to the midterms was which of the organizers and activists in my circle were activating using joy and which ones weren't. Um, because one of the things that, for instance, Santiago Meyer, who's been a guest on the podcast, who I know you know from Voters for Tomorrow, and Latasha Brown of Black Voters Matter, who's a friend of mine, their whole methodology has been around mobilizing communities from a position of power using joy and fun and enjoyment and that even in and of itself, I think, mobilizes a lot of people because it's it's a good time to get involved in it, right? Um, you know, there are barbecues, there are parties that, you know, if you're Santiago, you know, they, they had a blast. They were up for 36 hours with the Taylor Swift playlist on the night of the election. So some of it is also about, like, how do we motivate people to get involved to combat that cynicism? And so I'm, one thing I want to come back to because I feel like it's important is this fine balance between defiance and cultivating cynicism, and also how defiance and, uh, and, and, and the vision for the future that you mentioned play together. There are so many asymmetries between the left and the right that make our lives much harder. I named one about kind of the non-parallel between activists on each side and the unengaged but ideologically aligned. Another is that for them to construct their beautiful tomorrow, requires zero imaginative power. They just simply ask you to recollect an America that, granted, never actually existed, but at least, you know, you can turn on Nick at Night if that still exists, and Father Knows Best, Donna Reed, you know, you've seen it somewhere. Even if you're a super young Black kid in Detroit, like you accidentally one time saw one of those nostalgia shows, and you are aware because it probably is a photograph of Norbert Rockwell in one of your um, elementary school history books about America, that that is sort of the, the promised land and the beautiful thing that we're kind of striving to. So you don't need any imagination to, to think how that would be. Now, I want to be clear. I find that repugnant. For me, that's no beautiful tomorrow. That's a horrifying not even yesterday. For us, however, we have to construct our vision out of pure imagination. Because the fact of the matter is that we have never lived in an equitable, multiracial, you know, like not hung the fuck up about gender and race and origin and accent and, you know, country in which people who work for a living can earn a living. Like that has never existed. And so we have to tell people, hey, we need you to take a leap of faith. 
we need you to sign up to this thing that we can't actually show you. We can't show you in the real world. We don't have any sort of demonstrable proof. You know, we can kind of get close to it. We can sort of triangulate between places that have maybe done better or at least have a storyline that it's better. Um, We can take isolated moments in our history. We can take, you know, TV shows that sort of Afrofuturism. We can, but we need you to believe that if you do X, Y, Z, that actually we can live in this better state. I, I often joke to people that, you know, I usually tell my clients that there's one winning message and that message is we can have nice things, that that is the winning message of all campaigns because, hi, we can just have nice things because it turns out we have so much money, so much money. And in point of fact, I mean, it wasn't literally the campaign slogan for when Jacinda ran for prime minister of New Zealand, the original time. Um, the campaign slogan was let's do this. And I was I was living in Australia, I went over to New Zealand um at the time to pitch in with the Labour Party and to do another project. And I mean, it really like that's that was the campaign. It was basically we can have nice things. Never ever talked about the opposition, which was in power, had been in power for a very long time. There was no mention of them. It was basically just like, hey, you know, would you like things to just be like cool and good? We could just have cool, good things. In contrast, Democrats frequently like to run for office. or I call it running for student council on the more homework, less recess ticket. We love to tell people like, you need to work hard. Hard work should be rewarded. Like, we're going to make sure that people are working hard and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, why are you telling people that? Like, they're working hard enough. And also, you sit at a computer all day. Like. Hard actual work is being in a field picking shit. Don't tell people they have to do more of it. So now I have lost the thread of your original question. How do we balance this sort of cynicism? And I think the ways that I've seen when we have been effective at doing it, it's been with messaging and not for nothing is this the name of an organization that, you know, I helped, I I named and helped uh, launch and now is like, exists on its own and is wonderful, called We Make the Future. And not for nothing are a lot of the ads that I help write and create about the future is what we do together. The future are the choices that we make. We choose what happens next. Tomorrow is what we decide. And so that's one thing is really focusing in on, um, you know, the future is unwritten. It will be the series of choices that we make together. Another that we find over and over again in testing that maybe seems really facile but actually is effective is to show people examples of past wins. So, for example, in a big testing project we did around gig workers and mobilizing them to take action, I'm talking about Lyft, DoorDash, Uber, etc., showing images both of historic labor organizing and of present-day activism happening at Amazon, happening at Starbucks, et cetera, was really mobilizing to people. It's what I call the we did, we can, we will message. It's really important to do the we did, we can, we will. So for example, in a message, in 2020, we defeated Trump. This year, we will defeat Trumpism as part of our 2022 message. So that's an example of defiance and trying to deal with that cynicism by anchoring to something so that it doesn't seem just like you're full of shit. Like that's never going to happen. Right. Right. It's one of the things that I, I have found myself thinking about a lot lately is exactly this idea of imagination and the sort of projection of the future you could have, because I agree with you. It's incredibly difficult to say to people, you've got to commit to something you've never seen. And at the same time, one of the things that's fascinating to me, my, my friend, Dana Lynn Knuckles actually posits that liberation is actually collective imagining of a better future because there is something that happens when you're engaged in the process of imagining it that leads you to want it 
right? It's not just about the imagination of what could be. It's actually about, oh my God, we could have that, right? We could work less. We could have a 37 hour work week. We could have, you know, paid family leave for a year or more, right? We could have social security that actually like supported everyone from the age of 59 on, right? There's all sorts of ways that that's that that process of collective imagining starts to wake people up to what's possible from their own engagement. And that actually, to me, is like the first step, right, of liberation, because it allows you to recognize that it doesn't have to be the way it's always been. Um, and so I try to engage in that quite a bit, actually, myself, like even in the earliest days of that my political commentary in the Trump administration, I'd always say to people, you can you can book in 90% of your time for resistance as long as you've got this 10% over here held tight to the prospect of the future that you want to build. Because what are we aiming for? If all we're doing is punching back, we've got to also be aiming for something bigger and better than what led us to this horrible moment that we're all living through. Yes, because even resistance, and this was one of the things that I said you know, in that entire period, resistance is the status quo. Right. If you're in resistance, you're saying the best that I'm going to do, my aim right now is to stave off worse in order to maintain where we were, let's say in 2015, which wasn't that great to begin with. Right. So asking people to put out constant energy toward the maintenance of something that really wasn't that desirable in the first place is really a pretty wacky thing to do and serves the purpose of just reinforcing the bigness of the opposition. And again, I don't live in a fantasy land. I am aware of the bigness of the opposition. I have absolutely no trouble seeing and calling out what it is, which is fascism. That is clearly on full display. Anyone who can't see that, I'm not really sure. Like, you know, the the basics of that are you don't accept electoral outcomes and you engage or you endorse political violence. Check and check. That That is what fascism is defined as. And there you go. Check, check. So I am not talking about pulling punches, but what I am talking about is why would people want to join to, to go back to something that you were saying earlier, if you want people to join your party, you have to throw a better party. And right. if you are the party of reaction, if you are the party of letting them set the terms of debate, which happen over and over and over in various different ways, and, you know, that is something that I am arguing with people um, inside the consulting class all the time then they've already won before you started talking. You actually have to be the one to set the terms of debate and you have to call them out as the people who are abrogating those shared values, not focus in solely on them. When we were doing the 2020 research that led up to all of the election protection stuff that ended up, you know, being obviously very, very necessary One of the things that we did is we engaged in really deep conversation with experts from abroad who had successfully either studied or actually themselves taken down an authoritarian regime. And what they told us over and over, I'm speaking of people from, for example, who had either studied or been part of um, democratic movements in various African countries, in the former Yugoslavia, in the Balkans, you know, like uh, Serbia, people who really were on the inside of the the end of Milosevic, what they told us over and over was that it's really important not to lionize the authoritarian, but rather to make fun of them, mm. to show that they are a puny little weakling who is to, to deride them, to say... You know, I mean, it's the great and terrible Oz. You pull back the curtain and it is a puny, insufferable, useless, not very clever, scared little man, which is pretty much what they always are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, to me, one of the things that I think is just so key about how we combat all of this and it, you know, what I was thinking about while you were talking about it was the way in which we get stuck in 
the loop of who we're centering on, right? And what perspectives we're centering on. Because in my interactions, for instance, with Black activists and organizers, you know, one of the conversations it's had all the time is the way that if you're talking about people who are white and people who are non-white, you're still talking about whiteness, right? As opposed to talking about Black liberation, right, that centers on Black people and, um, and Black freedom, right? And one of the things that just seems to me to run such a tight parallel to that is the way in which that if all we're talking about is fighting back, as you put it, against fascism, we're still only talking about fascism, right? right. And I think that the kind of um, these these things go hand in hand. I think that the 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 deconstruction and the deplatforming of fascists as scary people, right, also helps to empower a conversation about what real democracy looks like. Yeah. And the, and the real world impacts, I mean, I cannot underscore enough just to make it more tangible for folks. So to give you a super concrete example, uh, there's a statistic that drives environmentalists both in Australia and the United States absolutely nuts, which is that when you ask voters, when you ask people in those two um, places, what percent of the economy do you think is coal? People wildly overestimate. In Australia, I'm not going to get this precisely right, so please do not, you know, Google and hate me. I'm telling you I don't have the number off the top of my head. It's minuscule. It's, you know, less than 1%. In the United States, it's even more minuscule than that. But when you ask people, like, what percent of our economy or what percent of our jobs do you think are in coal, they're like, I don't know. In Australia, they will wildly overestimate anywhere between 5%, 10%. It's, like, completely and totally off. It's less, you know, it's like a tenth of a percent. Even in West Virginia, which is like a coal region for us, it's still one or two percent even there. But people wildly overestimate it. That is very, very upsetting to environmentalists for reasons, and it should be upsetting to all of us for reasons that are really, really obvious. And when I would be doing trainings or I would be designing messaging around climate or, you know, whatever, especially in Australia where I've done a lot more climate stuff, People would tell me that and I'd be like, well, why do you think that is that everybody thinks that coal is like this giant industry? I'm like, all you do is talk about coal. You talk about coal 24-7. Like, of course, people are grossly overestimating its size and impact. You are constantly locked into a fight with it when you are just giving away your airtime instead of saying clean energy is the choice that we can be making. Like. Imagine food that tastes like it ought instead of like a photograph in a magazine. Imagine a traffic-free commute to work. Imagine opening up your energy bill and having a happy surprise. That is the clean energy future, and it's ours for the taking. Anyone Mm. who says differently is at the bidding and is lining their pockets with the money of corporations that are poisoning our air and our water and peddling lies in order to make us fear change. They mm-hmm. know that their hold on our future is slipping and they will do anything, pay any bribe, pay off any politician to keep us from having our due. Like you don't, you do need to call them out. You do need to call them out, but you don't do that first and you don't do that singularly. You explain what we could have and how they're getting in the way of it. I'm just using the environment example because it's such a like tangible and acute one that we can see people grossly misunderstanding. It's really problematic that people overestimate what percentage of jobs are in coal. It is an impediment to, you know, it makes people like, well, but what about those people? What will they do? You know, they'll be jobless. What about Joe Manchin? (laughs) Right. What about Joe Manchin? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of the things that I just find so fascinating about this is the way in which we seem to consistently shoot ourselves in the foot. And, you know, I want to talk about the midterms because obviously there were some messaging successes leading up to it. Um, you know, I, I will, I will freely admit, this is very public because I wrote a whole essay about it, how frustrated I was with the Biden administration right before the Dobbs decision fell. And in the few weeks after it, from the standpoint of messaging, from the standpoint of like both policy and messaging, but messaging in particular. Um, 
And, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I've been trying really hard to not hop on the train of Democrats are so terrible at this because I feel like we also got caught in a bit of a loop there ourselves uh, where we weren't fixing the problem. We were analyzing why the messaging hasn't landed (laughs) rather than just being like, okay, well, let me fix the messaging. Right. Um, But I'm curious about why we're so bad at this. And also, um, I do just want to acknowledge, I do think we righted the ship a little bit heading toward the midterm elections. And the results of the midterms, I think, were a lot more positive than what a lot of us were expecting, or, or at least suspected was possible. Um, and so I want, to, I want to talk about what worked and maybe how we can carry that forward, too. Early on, at uh, the beginning of the summer, I was I engaged in this really large scale project with um, an organization called Way to Win and with another organization called Future Forward, which is like a very major super PAC. And the idea was, let's bring together, let's let's call it strange bedfellows. We're all sort of on the left, but, you know, very much in different positions in terms of how much we usually work with grassroots versus like institutional kind of giant super PACs, DSEC, DCCC, like White House influence. And let's try to see if we can come up with a shared messaging framework that, or a set of principles and a set of ads that we will create, we will give away to people with no logo so that they can just put them out at themselves. Because one thing we haven't touched on, but is incredibly vital, is that one of the most important things about messaging, and it's really the most boring, is repetition. You actually have to say the exact same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And only then, once you've said it 12 more times, then the over and over again, might someone possibly have heard it. Messages that are more familiar to people are rated to be more true and more likable, simply for the fact of familiarity bias. It's because it creates what we call cognitive ease. Your brain doesn't have to reach for it. When I, unfortunately, say make America, you, your brain does great again for you. You don't have to reach. You don't have to think. There's nothing. It's system one. It's instinctive at this point. And even though you personally recoil from that, that cognitive ease actually creates a feedback system in your brain that that thing is true and desirable. There's a reason why, just to take a silly example, over and over and over again, every single pilot that looked like friends, a group of young people that were hanging out in some name the big city, would always get greenlit and would, you know, fail a few episodes in because we always like the thing initially that is already familiar to us. And and there's basic sort of biological and evolutionary reasons why that is a good, good mechanism in us. It's not all bad. So repetition is really important. And one of the hardest things for Democrats is repetition because we're, of course, all of us, the smartest people in every room and all of us are very, very clever. And so for every new thing, we need to all invent a brand new thing And we need to have a new name for every new thing. And the way that our funding structures are set up disincentivize any kind of repetition. What they incentivize is this organization having their message and their branding and their logo and their look and their talking points and this organization having theirs and this organization having theirs, because that's what you present back to your funder to get money. On the right, they fund organizations just to exist. And they are incentivized to be an echo chamber. They're not required to demonstrate that, you know, NARAL said something slightly different than Planned Parenthood, which said something slightly different than National Women's Law Center, which said something slightly different than Latinas for Reproductive Justice, which said something slightly different than Sister Song. So I hope it's clear. I'm not trying to pull out repro that I could, you know, pick, pick your issue and I'll do the same thing for other orgs. It's a, it's a matter of institutional survival to not have repetition, which is completely anathema to good messaging. So that is one of the reasons that is sort of just deeply problematic and creates what I call not invented here syndrome, where organizations, institutions, especially not on the C3 side, but on the campaign side where the real money is, because the C3 money, that's just make-believe, that's a joke, compared to what's being spent on campaigns, 
They each want to do their own thing so that they can go back to their donors and be like, we were the ones that did the thing. We were the ones that did the thing. So that's one reason. And then another reason, and then I will get to what I think went really well in 2022, which I, I think there's a lot to hold up that went really well. The other reason is that unfortunately, a lot of times you and I are maximizing for votes, but other people are maximizing for dollars. And so that is why these churn and burn horrible practices with email marketing and text marketing, which are just about, you know, immediate funding, they're not about building a long-term power base stable of people who feel empowered, who feel agency, who feel self-actualized, and who, by the way, actually research shows give more money over the long term because you're not sort of destroying the list and then having to go find new people. You're not getting as many people dropping off. and. There's this idea among especially kind of mainstream in power Democrats that the way that you do messaging is you think of voters as proverbial beachgoers on a beach and they're all sitting on their towels and candidates are like hot dogs. For those of you familiar with game theory and you know the hot dog vendor problem, this is a manifestation of that. And basically, you think to yourself, we're going to be the middle. We're going to position ourselves in order to capture what is called the median voter. Because if we put ourselves in the middle of this proverbial beach, the voter on the far, 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 far left, we're still the closest hot dog to them. And we're the closest hot dog to all those people in the middle. And the idea is the left has nowhere else to go right? They're not going to vote for the right wing. And so we don't risk losing them. And if we actually speak about our values, speak out in favor of racial justice, speak out in favor of immigrant rights, speak what used to be called, I really kid you not, the A word for years. And, you know, it was like, don't say the A word. Abortion was so anathema, you weren't even supposed to talk about it. All of that is built of a fundamental misapprehension of how people come to political judgments. People do not actually come to political judgments like beachgoers looking for the closest hot dog. They are attracted, especially people with, quote, moderate or middle-of-the-road views, they are very susceptible to repetition, to anchoring effects. So what they hear repeated most often becomes true and the way the world works. And it is also not the case that our base has nowhere else to go. Our base has somewhere else to go, and it's stay at home. And in fact, that is what they do. The majority of them don't participate. The largest block of people in the United States are not Democrats and are not Republicans and obviously are not independents. They are eligible non-voters. That is the largest group of people in this country. And so... Instead, we need to understand that a message is like a baton that has to be passed from person to person to person. And if the middle doesn't hear your message, by definition, it couldn't possibly persuade them. And so you need a message that your base is going to want to carry that, of course, is persuasive to the middle. You can't just fuck off the middle. There's not enough of the base. But you need to understand that that persuasion is not a matter of repeating what they already pair it back to you, it is toggling them into the most progressive understanding they can have. So that is the difference, for example, between saying, we know what keeps us safe. It's living in communities where we look out for each other, where we have our needs met, where if someone is struggling, they can make ends meet, get by, and get the care they need. We know what keeps us safe. It's having the people sworn to serve and protect us, act in our interests, treat us as equals, and spend their time preventing and solving crimes, not picking and choosing who to target and harm. We know what keeps us safe, etc. It's the difference between saying that, having an argument about crime on your own terms, and saying, of course we want to fund the police. We also want to fund the police, which, by the way, centrist voters don't believe you anyway. Those ads don't even work within their own paradigm because people are like, you're full of shit. I heard you say something different before. I don't believe you. And creates despondency among our base. So it doesn't work on either dimension. You have to have your conversation. So that is like some of the diagnosis of what is not great. What worked, again, I'm biased because obviously I was in the thick of it, in the middle of it. 
But I would say that what worked was, number one, drawing a contrast. Ads that, that were about contrast as opposed to pure negative, pure positive were the most effective across all testing. Ads that anchored the core value of freedom and made it plural, so talking about freedoms, from the freedom to decide whether and when to have kids, to the freedom to retire in dignity with social security, to the freedom to pick our own leaders. Ads and messages that used abortion front and center and did that not by hanging abortion out to dry on its own, which a lot of ads did, which were fine, and, and especially earlier in the cycle, those were particularly persuasive. That persuasion began to wane. But ads that included abortion as what we call a salient exemplar, a proof point of their broader ideology, that abortion was case in point that they will take away your freedoms. And people who will take away your freedom to decide what happens inside of your own body will take away your freedom to pick your leaders, will take away your freedom to marry who you love, and will take away your freedom to earn a good living. It was using abortion as a tangible example to illustrate their fascist ideology. And so really it was this battle between our side, which was protect our freedoms, and their side, which was take away our freedoms. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing to me how effective that looked from the outside, you know, as somebody who was organizing on the ground and door knocking and all of that, and how easily, I mean, your organization did an incredible ad on this in the final days leading up to the midterms that hit all of these points. Um, but I will say that there, there's something about the way in which that message is conveyed that also translates very easily into the conversations you can have when you're door knocking, that you can have with your neighbors that make it very real to people what is actually at stake. And I had a big learning point around this because I, I almost got kicked out of the parents chat um, for my fifth grader because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the political animal, you know, there's several in the community, but, you know, we're in Katie Porter territory and Katie's re-election campaign was really tough this time in part because of redistricting and a lot of people not realizing that 70% of her constituents had not been in her district the last two times that she had run. And um, I made the point of like, you should go out and vote because, you know, what's going to happen if one of our kids is the victim of a crime and needs an abortion, right? And everybody was like, you're making us very uncomfortable. You really shouldn't be talking about this in here. And I'm like, well, I talk about it everywhere. So you're just going to have to live with it. Um, but the thing that, that shifted in me was that right after that moment happened for me in the parents' WhatsApp chat, I saw your ad and it allowed me to pivot in my own thinking about, How's it going to feel when the next thing that they come for is your birth control? How's it going to feel when the next thing they come for is the marriage of your sister to her wife, right? How's it going to feel when the next thing and the next thing and the next thing in the row of dominoes that show what they're capable of starts to fall? And that is a message that gets a lot more reception than, oh my God, I'm terrified. And then going back to your point about, you know, the checking out and the cynicism, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a message that actually translates from the very big picture super PAC ads that we've all seen straight down into the conversations that we all have in our neighborhoods about why our elections matter so much. So I love the flow of it also. I just have to say, I think it, it translates very well to the on the ground grassroots work that so many of us have been doing. Well, I appreciate that. That ad was a labor of many, many, many people's love. Shout out to my partner in crime in this whole project, my, the co-lead, uh, Jennifer Fernandez and Kona, fantastic strategist. Mm. And, and obviously the creatives on that ad is a beautifully rendered ad. Um, Wynn Company did a, a really extraordinary job. Yeah, that storyline, that ad is really about freedom for all. And it's telling the story, the contrast of, you know, these two Americas that we've always been. An America that promised freedom, but really only meant that for wealthy white landowners. Um, and the ongoing, ever-present fight to expand that definition of freedom so that it could actually be this promise of liberty and justice for all, and essentially walking in the steps of our forefathers, whether that be Selma or Stonewall or, you know, Seneca Falls, mm -hmm. and that we have also always been here those of us who know 
that freedom doesn't come with restrictions and terms. And also the reclaiming of freedom itself, which is a value, of course, that the right continuously has tried to co-opt and claim as their own, but has been absolutely essential to progressive victories over and over and over again, whether that's freedom to marry, whether that's freedom summer, or whether that's um, FDR's four freedoms in the economic realm. And so, yeah, that whole recapturing of freedom is something that I've been arguing about with folks for a very, very long time and how essential it is for us. Yeah, it's so critical. Um, okay, so I have to ask you the three questions that we ask every guest. Uh, the first one is what keeps you going? What keeps me going? So I'm Jewish and uh, being Jewish is a not just a big part of who I am, but it's a big part of the work, like the way that I approach the work that I do. And there's um, a saying from a commentary on the Torah, uh, Pirkei Avot, the sayings of the father, that in English translates to, um, it is not yours to finish the work, but neither are you free to desist from the task. Um, and I think about that all the time. I think about how we're not actually, no one's guaranteed anything. No one's guaranteed tomorrow. No one's guaranteed next hour. And you're certainly not guaranteed the fruits of your labor. You're just not. And that's tough. But if you know that you're not guaranteed the fruits of your labor, right, that, that Moses actually didn't make it to the promised land after all of that time and all of that struggle, then you understand that the work is its own reward, that you're doing the work because it's all that there is to do, because it's all that there exists to do, and that someday, someone, somehow, somewhere, they're going to be the beneficiaries of it. That's what keeps me going. Okay, and now I'm all weepy. <laughs> um, I, I feel that so much in my heart. And, and I think about it all the time in the context of um, the ways in which the struggle is always ongoing and that once you're on the path, you're never off it. And you may not live to see the thing that you most wish would be the case, but other people will. And isn't that reason enough, right? Um, yeah. I love that. Um, next question. What are your most pressing concerns about the state of America and the world right now? And, you know, I'm interested to hear this from a perspective of 2024 and what we're heading into, um, because even though we did pretty well in the midterms, the battle is so far from over. Um, and I'm concerned about the House. I'm concerned about what's going to happen to the progressive agenda over the next two years. And obviously, the messaging that we engage in between now and then is going to be really critical to the outcome. Yeah. Um, I absolutely agree with your concern. And I would say that um, the number one thing that sort of keeps me that, that is like very off. Yeah. That, that concerns me. And, and maybe this is going to sound like, a total reversal from the rest of what I said before, I promise it's not, and I will explain how it's not, was seeing people say, democracy won! Woohoo! Democracy won! Voters won, right? Uh, we defied pundits and pollsters and precedent. Great. Say those things. Definitely pop champagne. Definitely celebrate. How dare you say democracy won? We conducted that election, we conducted 2022, already under state laws that impacted 55 million voters. 55 million voters were subjected to some form of mass voter silencing, their vote not counting because of gerrymandering, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just the people in Texas, Florida, Arizona, um, Georgia, so we don't have a democracy. We've never had a democracy. And the notion that democracy won, it's not just sort of an innocent wrong thing to say. It's actually deeply problematic because what we see out of people and especially apolitical people, again, who are the people we need to mobilize and middle of the road people, again, who are the people that we need to persuade. So the two constituencies, the people we call swing and surge, 
what we see out of Swing and Surge is massive amounts of what psychologist John Jost calls system justification. And that is everything is fine. See, we thought things were bad, but it all worked out. The system worked out. Everything held. Like, what are you worried about? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we cannot give in to that system justification because that is what has people sit out. People have to continue to see themselves as in an ongoing struggle to protect our freedoms and to defeat the MAGA faction. They have to have that front and center because the fact is that you know, there was a criminal conspiracy to attempt to overthrow our elections. And the party that not only didn't denounce that, but actually celebrated it is now in control of the House. That should be inconceivable to all of us. And yet it is our reality. And so I think it's just really, really important to learn the correct lessons from 2022 and to not have that lesson be like, oh, now we're at sea, everything's fine, we're yeah. all good. Yeah. Totally. <clears throat> I completely agree. So that brings me to our final question, which is, um, what are the big takeaways for our audience? What can they do to, our audience is made up of so many activists and organizers and everyday folks who are really mobilizing in their own communities for state, local elections, as well as federal elections and all the key school board and city council and county council positions that, you know, are going to happen in the next year, right? Um, so what what can our audience do to actually really work the messaging to have the greatest impact here? And there's so many great takeaways from our conversation, but if you had to give me a top line or two, what would you say? Um, I would say that, um, first, just an easy tip recommendation. Everything that we create, we create open source. That means that all of our messaging guides on whatever it is, like how to talk about crime, how to talk about education, how to talk about you name it, is on the ASO website. Take it, use it, apply it. The same goes for creative content that we make. So that's, you know, GIFs, memes, ads, et cetera. It's all, it's all if your words don't spread, they don't work. Take it, uncredited, pretend it's your words. That's really the entire idea. It's supposed to come out of lots of mouths over and over again. So that's one kind of simple thing. And then the rest of the, what I would say beyond that is just remember that if you are engaged in the act of strategic communications, you are trying to get people to believe a thing or do a thing as opposed to chit-chatting, venting, all informing, inquiring, all of which are good human things to do. Definitely do that too. If you're engaged in any kind of political conversation, you need to always and ever have this idea of what's your theory of change on that? What's, what do you think that saying X is going to yield? And remember not to conflate stimulus with response. What I mean by that is I need people to believe that immigrants do pay taxes. So I'm going to say immigrants do pay taxes. I need people to believe that Republicans are really, really shitty on the economy. So I'm going to say Republicans are really shitty on the economy. I, you know, fill in the blank. Almost never is the thing that you actually need people to believe the thing you should actually say, because what you're doing is you're attempting to rely upon their prefrontal cortex, their rational brain, their sort of thinking and as opposed to making them feel away. And that's where I would just point back to the messaging guides on how you actually engage them to get them to a place of persuasion as opposed to lecture them um, with factual arguments, which do not work. And, and that brings us right back to one of the things that for me is just so key here, which is what, what's the future we're trying to build, right? And how do we show people that? Because that, to me, is the thing that gets people inspired and excited and motivated and, you know, challenges them to show up for a better world rather than to recoil in fear or cynicism uh, or, for that matter, to try to motivate to get out the door from a place of, of disdain. Um, I think it's much easier, as we've discussed so many times in this conversation now, and thank you so much to get people to do the thing that we want them to do if what they're aiming for is something so much better that is a vision of a world that we hope to create. So 
Thank you so much for this. This has been fantastic and delightful and full of fantastic ideas. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And with that, we will say goodbye to Anat Shankar Osorio, but I'm sure we will have you back. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, so that may possibly, I think we set a record for the longest interview that we've done so far on the podcast, and I feel like we could have gone on for hours about this critical topic of how we win and how we message to win. I hope this interview this week has given you so many good thought points to take with you into your own work out in the world. One of the things that I'm going to be thinking about a lot in the coming weeks and as we head toward 2024 is this issue of how defiance on the one hand and the inspiration to build a better future on the other can be paired together to create messaging that makes voters show up at the polls. We have never had a true democracy in this country as a not so eloquently described. And one of the things that I hope we're all fighting for are exactly the kinds of futures that she talked about in this episode the future where people can retire in dignity, where everyone has health care, where our climate is clean, where we have our freedoms and our rights, where we have opportunity available to us to live healthy, whole lives. All of this purposeful imagining, all of this time spent focused on the imagination of our own liberation and freedom and freedom for all people is an incredibly worthy endeavor at this moment in time. And as we head into this season of reflection, after the midterms are over, and as we drive toward 2023 and eventually the beginning of yet another presidential campaign, I hope you'll all take this moment to take a pause and really think about the world that you want to live in, the world that you want to create for those who come after you, even if you never get to live to see it. And that in all of the work that you do out there in the world, you drive toward that. Thanks so much for being here, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com, where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at newsletterwithecm.substack.com. And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughit. That's patreon.com slash livingthroughit. Thanks for listening and see you next week.